we have been studying the subject of Bible authority. My purpose in preaching on a subject like this, as it is with any subject, is for us all to develop what is the mind of the Lord. He gives it to us in regeneration. We have within us a mind that thinks the way God thinks. The reason you don't think the way God thinks sometimes is because He left you with your mind. And that's a problem. But He did give us the mind of the Lord. 1 Corinthians 2, 15 and 16. But we have the mind of Christ and we know all things. And we judge all things. It's through the preaching of the Gospel that we bring that mind. It's actually an internal principle of righteousness and wisdom in us up to our understanding where we can then think actively, consciously, the way the Lord would have us to think. That's why we want to study Scripture. Tonight, if you need a reason why you're here, if you need a reason why we need to open our Bibles again, if you need a reason why do we have to listen to you one more time, it's because I want, by God's grace, to help you have the mind of the Lord on the subject of authority. In our study, we have come to some objections that I've raised just to help you understand what the Bible teaches. Paul thought that was an effective way of teaching when he would say, Thou wilt save it unto me. And he'd raise the question before his objector could raise it. And that's what I've tried to do. Now, two weeks ago, we looked at three of them. Objection number one was, If what you've taught us about authority is correct, I might get stuck with a bad ruler who could use his power to hurt me. And that's, that's a good objection. That's, I mean, that's a question that does come up in the human hearts. I could get stuck under a bad husband, a bad father, a bad master, pastor, king, that could take advantage of me. The answer to that is to remember the providence of God. Anything could happen to you. Listen, you could have been born two feet tall, been a dwarf. You could have been born without eyes or without hands. And in both cases, Isaiah chapter 45 tells us it's not our place to complain against God, who is the potter over the clay in his power over us. Nor are we to say to our parents, what have you brought forth? To argue against the authority that's over us and the man in that authority is to argue against the providence of God who takes care of everything else we can't control. God has those things in his control and he has some perfect wisdom involved in the rulers you get. The rulers we have are God's choice for our lives. They they may not be the rulers over us forever, but they are rulers over us. They may be for His glory. They may be for our trial. They may be for our benefit. They may be for our judgment. But it's God's choice. And the first thing we must do is humble ourselves before God and remember His providence. The fact that you have a certain height, a certain intellectual ability, certain physical ability, a certain aptitude for for specific trades, the inability or the ability to sing, and all the abilities that God gives were by His choice. It made just as much sense to complain about those, the lack of those, as it does to worry about who God might put over you. We do not change the Word of God, nor do we fight against it because God may give us a ruler that wouldn't be just our choice for that ruler. Just like God may make us a certain height or of a certain intellectual ability that would be different than what we would have chosen if we 
have been able to make the choice, but I want to tell you one thing. I believe in a God who can make better choices than any man in the matters I just described. Amen. And if you don't believe that with all your heart, you will live your 70 years on this planet in a very frustrated way. The first thing you've got to do is thank God for what you are, and He had infinite wisdom in designing you and giving you the opportunities you've had thus far in your life and the family you've had and the parents you've had and the teachers you've had, the pastors and the masters and everything else that God has ordained for your life has been by wise design. Right. And let's give God the glory and not fret against Him. Amen. I believe the best thing for us to do in considering that objection that rises up in the hearts of some is to think about, as, I, as I've already taught you, the first authority relationship that God brings us into is our parents. And remember with parents, He does not ask you what kind of parents you'd like, nor does He give you a way out of the abuse that your parents could work in your life. You are a helpless little child, and you, can, you will be molded, unless by the grace of God He saves you, you will be molded by your parents. And you never had, you weren't consulted in the matter, and you don't have a way of escape. And the damage that parents can do to a child is severe. And we trust that to God, don't we? Are you going to do anything about it? Are you going to bring your children into this world in any different way than God brought you into this world? And I hope that we can thank God for the parents we had. And some of you may have a harder time to do that than others, but still, you ought to thank God because He had wisdom in it. Right. And at some point, if you haven't got there yet, you'll be thankful for the parents God gave you. Proper understanding of this objection, you might get a bad ruler. Well, that will drive us not to fret against God, not to fret against authority, but to drive us to prayer. Right. We ought to pray for all that are in authority, that God will give us rulers that allow us the liberty to lead quiet and peaceable lives in all godliness and honesty. Children ought to pray for their parents. It rejoices my heart to hear my children pray for me. We ought to pray for our pastors. We ought to pray for our masters as we have done this evening specifically. We ought to pray for our national leaders. It's by prayer that we're saved from those rulers. We don't save ourselves from a bad ruler by getting rid of authority. Then who will be your ruler? I'd rather have it be the office of the man God has chosen rather than what men might choose. Amen. If you have any further difficulty with this, you ought to remember what we've covered under the source of authority. Remember all the different points we looked at? God chose the office by wisdom. God prepares, God chooses men by wisdom. God prepares those men by wisdom. And God moves those men at various times by wisdom. And if you really believe that, there's a lot of verses in the Word of God to defend and teach you that, then you leave it up to Him. And when the question is raised, but I might get a bad ruler... God is still in charge. God is still in charge as He is in every other area of your life. Objection number two. Someone might say, but you just don't know the man I work for. You just don't know my husband. But you just don't know my father. And so they say, my master or my father or my husband is obnoxious and you wouldn't be able to submit to him if you were under him either. I've heard that many times. You know, the Apostle Peter answered that directly, didn't he? That we're to be in subjection with all fear, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the forward. Also to the forward. Right. Do you realize 
But it doesn't take any conscience toward God to submit to a good and gentle master. You want to submit to him for natural reasons. Because he takes such good care of you, you want to reward him back, and you want to earn for yourself some more blessing and favor on his part. I'll tell you where you earn the favor of God, you do something that's thankworthy, it's when you submit to a forward master. And that's what the Word of God teaches in 1 Peter chapter 2. We looked at that already. The answer to that question is, God has chosen that obnoxious master, and you submit anyway, and then you do it by conscience toward God. It's out of fear toward the Lord and recognition, He gave me this man, He knows what I'm under, he, he knows all of this, I'm going to submit anyway and show that I love him more than myself. Because to fight against a master like that, you're protecting yourself against God. God wants you to submit. God's ordained imperfect men to positions of authority, which means that authority will always be exercised imperfectly. But some will still be good and gentle in general, and some will be forward or obnoxious in general. God wants us to submit and obey both. Objection number three. Someone says, well, the master I'm under, the authority that I'm under, they don't behave very well, so why should I? It's usually, usually verbalized by women. When it's said this way, if my husband would love me more, I'd submit more. Or children might say, if my, if my father and my parents were more considerate, they'd just give me a little bit more freedom. I'd submit more. Now that, that comes from the beginnings of our nation. In the beginnings of our nation, our nation wrote the preamble to the Constitution, the Declaration of Independence, which said, because we don't like the form of government we have, which doesn't give us our own way, we will create a new government. Because we have the inalienable right to do so, because we have the inalienable right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, so we'll make a government that suits our fancy. Because all men have that prerogative when a government doesn't suit their fancy to make a new government. That is no excuse for overthrowing authority because the person in authority isn't doing his job. That's missing where you ought to be looking. That's looking at the figure in authority rather than yourself. The wife who complains that her husband isn't doing his job is forgetting something. God is holding her responsible for what she does. God holds her husband responsible for what he does. God did not create the woman to hold the husband responsible to her for what he does. Remember this. God, Christ, the man, the woman. It is a very specific order. And the woman is not between God, Christ, and the man. The woman ought to look to herself. Am I submitting? Am I in subjection? Am I referencing my husband the way I should rather than but my husband doesn't do his various duties. Listen, there's a God in heaven that'll take care of husbands who don't do their duties. There's a God in heaven that'll take care of masters that don't do theirs. It's not the employee's right to say, but if my employer, if my master would just be a little bit more considerate, I'd serve him better. That's not the way to look at it. The way to look at it is, Lord, help me serve my forward master better, rather than worrying about his job. Remember, if you see oppression... In a province, you don't go take matters into your own hand or complain about the oppression. You just remember there's a God in heaven who's higher than they. Ecclesiastes chapter 5 and verse 8. I have heard too many times, and brethren, I'm not picking on anyone. I want you to search your own heart. How many times have we excused a lack of submission on our parts because 
we're blaming the one in authority for not being as good as he should be. Well, listen, there's a God that's over him, and he usually has some men over him that he has to be in submission to himself. The only proper way, the only way to be content, the only right way, the only way to be at peace, is to consider our own duties and not the duties of our masters. When God wants to address masters in the Bible, he doesn't say, servants. When your master is forward, confront him. When he wants to address parents, he doesn't say, children, bring to your parents' attention their inconsistencies. He says, fathers, provoke not your children to wrath, but bring them up with the nurture and admonition of the Lord. He did not call children to tell their fathers and correct their fathers when they were discouraging their children. God addresses fathers, and fathers will be dealt with by a living God. Children are to obey their parents in the Lord, for this is right. And that's the end of their responsibility themselves. And if we'll think that way, it'll save us from a lot of grief and always worrying about someone else, always worrying about the fact that they're not doing their job right, and so we slip on our own or we excuse our own weaknesses. We must focus on our own. Our government has its problems, but that is no excuse for us not to submit. That is no excuse for us not to pay our taxes. Some of those tax dollars may be going to do things that we do not approve of, but so did they in the Roman Empire, and Jesus Christ never even took notice of it. He said, render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's. And render unto your husband the things that are your husband's. Instead of trying to withhold, because he's not just the husband of the Caesar, you would wish him to be. Objection number four. I've heard it said, and I'm sure you've thought it before, but I'm just as able. I'm just as able as the one in authority over me. Why do I have to submit to him? It just isn't fair, since I know just as... I may even know more than the one that I'm supposed to be submitting to. And so we reject and we rebel against authority because we think more highly of our ability than we should. You know, sometimes God may give you a father that isn't as smart as you are. Sometimes a woman may marry a husband that she's wiser than. Can you think of an example in the Bible real quick? Abigail, what was her husband's name? Nabal. What was he? A fool. What was she? A woman of good understanding, a wise woman. It happens sometimes. It doesn't make a bit of difference. Abigail still owed Nabal all the obedience that God expected of her. We'll get to the point where she drew the line as we uh, get to the checks and authority. Because Abigail didn't obey her husband in everything. She drew the line. What an example we have in 1 Samuel 25 of a check and authority. And for those of you who are wondering if we're ever going to get to the part where we put authority in its proper place, we shall get there. It, we shall get there. The thing I worry about most, though, in our generation is us exalting authority as high as we ought to. And that's why we treat it first, and that's why we treat it preeminently. But we shall get there because we want to have the balance that Scripture has. But I'm smarter than the one that I have to submit to. Now, that isn't generally true. Do you believe that's generally true? If you believe that's generally true, then God's a fool. That's right. That means God's exalted the foolish of this world to be the rulers in places of authority. If you believe that's true, then the natural selection of those that are better is a vain selection process. When in fact, 
the leaders of companies are usually the leaders of those companies because they're superior to the men that are running the machines at the bottom of that company. Right. That's the natural selection process. That works, and so does God's ordinance work. He's ordained wise men. Remember, he chose the office, he chose the man, he prepared the man, and he moves the man in that office. We must remember, when that objection comes, and you'll say it, we're going to have cases like that. You may have cases like that in your life. Remember, God chose the office. God Almighty chose the office in His wisdom. And God chose the man that is in the office for you in His wisdom. And God prepared the man in the office by His wisdom. And God moves the man in the office by His wisdom. And what meets the eye from a servant's perspective is usually only a small piece of the pie of what any master, father, husband, pastor, or king is responsible for. That servant sees a little minuscule part of his job and says, I'm smarter than he is. I can do a better job. But they're only looking at a small, narrow view of that because they're servants and they've got a servant mentality. And a servant mentality does not see the big picture. That's why they're servants. Masters see the big picture. And those under authority should recognize that. A child may come home from calculus and have received honors in a calculus course where when that child knows his dad flunked math. And the child might pride itself in thinking that it's superior to its father. God have mercy if knowing calculus makes any difference in being a father. Right. Now to a child it makes a big difference. To a father it makes little difference. But that's the perspective of those under authority. Someone on the job may question why the master gets to sit behind that mahogany desk in such a plush office when he couldn't come out here and change a light bulb compared to me, and I'm an engineer. Listen, all that man is thinking about is what you do with your fingers and not what you do with your mind so much as that man that sits behind that desk has responsibilities that that man out there changing light bulbs or whatever he's doing has never even thought of. That's right. He does not know what it means to go home at night and have all the weight of that responsibility that a master has on his shoulders and to have to consider all the various ins and outs of running a company and keeping it going. The Lord have mercy on us. Remember the office? Remember the man? Remember the preparation of the man? And remember the moving of the man is by the ordinance of God. And to say, I'm smarter, you are fighting against that ordinance. And there is no profit in saying that except to leave you a frustrated human being. What good does that do to even think that? Obey him. Submit to him. And if you truly are wiser, I want to tell you something. God in his providence, the natural selection process of this world will in general find you a better spot. And you just leave it in the hands of God for promotion cometh from Him. And don't you try to get yourself over your master because you think you're better than He is. Look at number 16. Number 16. This is our first new objection tonight and it's, a come, it's come up in the Word of God and it's come up in our hearts before. Number 16. Just the sheer weight of the responsibility of a master outweighs so much that servants go through. A servant thinks, well, I've got more ability. I'm more intelligent. I have a better grasp of what's going on. And they don't recognize all the multifaceted aspects of their master's life. 
I don't want to read all of number 16. It would take more time than I want to spend. But do you remember number 16? Let's read the first few verses anyway. Now Korah, the son of Izhar, the son of Kohath, the son of Levi, and Dathan and Abiram, the sons of Eliab, and On, the son of Peleth, sons of Reuben, took men. And they rose up before Moses with certain of the children of Israel, 250 princes of the assembly, famous in the congregation, men of renown. And they gathered themselves together against Moses and against Aaron, and said unto them, Ye take too much upon you, seeing all the congregation are holy, every one of them, and the Lord is among them. Wherefore then lift ye up yourselves above the congregation of the Lord? Uh, mutiny on the bounty. Doesn't it sound like mutiny on the bounty? You've taken too much upon you. Listen, we're all holy. We're all spiritual. We all know our Bible. We all have a relationship with the Lord. God's blessed us all with spiritual understanding. You take too much upon you. The Lord is among all of us. And they came before Moses and said, Ye take too much upon yourselves. We have as much right to your position as you do, because the Lord is with us, and we're just as holy as you are. Now, for those of you who know the rest of number 16, that's a horrifying statement they made. It was right. one of the last statements they made. Famous last words, you take too much upon you. But I want you, I wish, and only a master can know. A father who thinks of being a father right now can know what it must have, been, what it must have felt like to be Moses. I want to remind you of something about Moses. He's the meekest man on the face of this earth. That means he never put himself forward. Did Moses want that job? Moses didn't want that job. He fought with God to avoid that job of being a leader over Israel, and God forced him into it. But he tried to execute that job, and the Bible tells us he was the meekest man on the face of the earth. And when Moses heard it, he fell on his face, verse 4, and he spake unto Korah and to all his company, saying, Even tomorrow the Lord will show who are his, and who is holy, and will cause him to come near unto him. Even him whom he hath chosen will he cause to come near unto him. Now it sounds like Moses understood authority, didn't he? God's chosen office, God's chosen a man, God's prepared a man, and tomorrow we'll find out who that man is. That happens in every home. Dad had better keep this position. You can say, but I want to be meek. Moses was meek, but you read the rest of number 16, and Moses wasn't weak. Right. Moses was meek, but he wasn't weak, and he defended his position of authority, and we have it being defended right here in verse 5. And he says in verse 9, Seemeth it but a small thing unto you, that the God of Israel hath separated you from the congregation of Israel, to bring you near to himself, to do the service of the tabernacle of the Lord, and to stand before the congregation to minister unto them, See, God had already chosen these men to be priests. They already had an exalted position, but they weren't content with it. They didn't like the fact that they hadn't achieved Moses' position, and so they wanted his. In verse 15, we read about Moses being very wroth. And he said to the Lord, Respect not thou their offering. I have not taken one ass from them, neither have I hurt one of them. And he says in the next verse, Be thou and all thy company before the Lord, thou and they and Aaron tomorrow, and bring your senses with fire 
And we read in verse 19, the glory of the Lord appeared unto all the congregation. And listen, this, this verse isn't written for pastors anymore, but it's written for all those in authority. This is God defending those in authority. And the Lord spake in verse 20, and he said, verse 21, Separate yourselves from among this congregation, that I may consume them in a moment. To Moses and Aaron. He said, Moses and Aaron, I've chosen you so much, go ahead and stand out here by yourselves, and I'll eliminate the rest. And they fell on their faces and said, O God, the God of the spirits of all flesh, shall one man sin, and wilt thou be wroth with all the congregation? There's some reasoning with God. Do you see that? How the men of Scripture reason with the Lord? They just didn't say don't. They gave him a reason why he ought not to. Should you judge the whole nation for one man's sin? And the Lord said, well, at least go ahead and tell the congregation to get away from these sinners. And so they spake to the congregation in verse 26, Depart, I pray you, from the tents of these wicked men, and touch nothing of theirs, lest ye be consumed in all their sins. And Moses said in verse 28, Hereby ye shall know that the Lord hath sent me to do all these works, for I have not done them of mine own mind. And there's the meekness of Moses. If these men die the common death of all men, or if they be visited after the visitation of all men, then the Lord hath not sent me. But if the Lord make a new thing, and the earth open her mouth, and swallow them up with all that appertain to them, and they go down quick, that is, alive, into the pit, then ye shall understand that these men have provoked the Lord. And it came to pass, as he made an end of speaking all these words, the ground laid asunder that was under them, and the earth opened up her mouth, and swallowed them up, and their houses, and all the men that appertained unto Korah, and all their goods. They, and all that appertained to them, went down alive into the pit, and the earth closed upon them, and they perished from among the congregation. And verse 35 tells us, There came out a fire from the Lord, and consumed the 250 men that offered incense. Now that's enough for us to read of Numbers chapter 16, but this objection came up once before in Scripture, didn't it? Numbers chapter 16. Moses and Aaron, you take too much on yourselves. We're all holy. We all have a right to participate in the leadership of this nation. I mean, the Lord's with us as much as He's with you. Why do you take a position over us? We've got ability too. There's an office. There's a man. There's a preparation. And there's a moving by God's providence in that man. And those are by the ordinance of God. And when the Bible says, let every soul be subject to the higher powers, for there is no power but of God, that's what it's talking about. And these men fought against the ordinance of God and it didn't last long. God defends fathers, husbands, pastors, masters, and kings. Don't fall into the category of Korah and his company. You know, those who say, but I'm just as able or I'm more able, I can do a better job, and all those things that some men say, they are speaking the language of brute beasts. Out of Jude, verses 8 through 10, and 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 10 through 12, where the apostles, two apostles write and tell us about men that speak about things they do not understand, but like brute beasts, they complain about the authority they're under. Let us not be guilty of that. Let us not criticize like a, a President Bush for certain things he might do because we don't know the rest of what he does. Don't you think you've got more ability than President Bush? I'd like to see you sit down next to him and take him on a few categories of human ability and wisdom. I'd like to see you sit down to that overweight general that ran, that ran our campaign in the Middle East and take him on in some IQ test too. It's been measured several times at 170 plus. That's not bad. It'll put you to the test. 
I don't care who you are in this room. Those men have ability and they have responsibility you've never even felt. Listen, the biggest responsibility you have is can you get cornflakes to the breakfast table tomorrow morning? And they had 550,000 men. Can they get, their, get them home to their mothers and wives? And then do it in a way that doesn't upset the politics of, of pansy nations that can't deal bluntly anymore. I mean, it's a difficult road to follow for men in authority today. Right. Don't you think it's an easy job and that you can easily outperform them? Objection number five. We just handled objection number four. You think you're more able? Don't even think that way. You're putting yourself in the company of Korah. And the company of Korah ended up alive in the pit. And the company of Korah was consumed by fire. Those that were, were remaining. Objection number five. But if, if what you've taught us is ever practiced, Guyana and Red Kool-Aid are next. If we submit to authority. I mean... If we do things the way you've taught, and we say, if children submit to fathers, why fathers could just end them, end up with taking them into a Jim Jones call and asking, telling them to drink red Kool-Aid down in Guyana. <coughs> why, if we submitted to you that way, we could end up there. Is there an answer to that objection? Has God provided safeguards? We're going to get to those safeguards, but right now I need to cut this objection short. First of all, has God saved you from famine? Is that out of your control too? But has he saved you from it? Has he saved you from economic collapse? Has he saved you from disease? Does he keep your heart ticking every minute of every day? Does he keep your liver going through its chemical processes every day? Then I want to tell you something. Almighty God can protect you from Jim Jones and Guyana and Red Kool-Aid. And he'll do it the same way. Prayer delivers men. If those people had known God, and if those people had besought God for mercy, God would have delivered them. Right. Because God delivers people who cry under oppression. Look at Exodus chapter 3. Exodus chapter 3. Why my dad could lead me astray. Why my husband could lead me astray. Why you could lead us astray. More like what you may think. Why, my master could ruin me. Our president could lead us astray. We trust in a living God that is higher than all five of those positions of authority. In Exodus chapter 3, God has appeared to Moses in the burning bush and is ordaining him to go back to Egypt and bring forth the people of God. And we read in verse 7, The Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people which are in Egypt. And have heard their cry by reason of their taskmasters, for I know their sorrows. Therefore, I am getting rid of all authority in this universe, so that never again can the Egyptians oppress anyone, nor can any nation oppress another nation. <coughs> no, that is not the solution. The solution is not to water down authority and protect us from a Jim Jones. The solution is other than that. But I want to tell you that the God that sees oppression. And these people had cried out by reason of their taskmaster God that it's made its way to heaven, and I've heard it. Verse 8, and I am come down to deliver them out of the land of the Egyptians, and to bring them up out of that land into a good land and a large, unto a land flowing with milk and honey, unto the place of the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Amorites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites. Now therefore, behold, the cry of the children of Israel is coming to me. 
And I have also seen the oppression wherewith the Egyptians oppressed them. Come now, therefore, and I will send thee unto Pharaoh, that thou mayest bring forth my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. And I want to tell you that if some people had been begging God in Jim Jones's little cult, God would have brought them out of that. Because God delivers his people. Right. And he delivered Israel out of Egypt. And that was a nation of 600,000 men, beside women and children. God has delivered before, and he'll deliver again. Look at the book of Esther. Look at the book of Esther. For those of you who've been here for several years, Brother Herbie and Sister Linnea stumbled on Esther. This, they didn't stumble on it. It's in their Bible, but they really got into Esther this past week. And on their own, reading and study, have come to see some of those glorious things that we learned in that book four years ago. Right. And they were rejoicing in that. They called me one day this week, just wanted to talk all about Esther, and we just shared all the things back and forth that we love so much about that glorious book of God's providence. But in the book of Esther, was there a people who were about to be oppressed by a Jim Jones? What was, it, what was Jim Jones's name in the book of Esther? Haman. What was Haman going to do? The red Kool-Aid was going to be used in every province, wasn't it? Whatever it took to kill all the Jews. In Esther, Esther chapter 4, we want to begin reading at verse 15. The decree has gone out from King Ahasuerus. And it's the law of the Medes and Persians that cannot be altered. And God never did alter it. He just made sure that another decree went out. Remember that. But in Esther 4 and 15, then Esther bade them return Mordecai this answer. Go, gather together all the Jews that are present in Shushan, and fast ye for me, and neither eat nor drink three days, night or day. I also and my maidens will fast likewise. And so will I go in unto the king, which is not according to the law. And if I perish, I perish. Can I change the short read without anyone losing track of where we are? Not according to the law. We'll be back to that. There's a time to do things not according to the law. Did you see that? Yep. What was at stake? Life was at stake. Verse 17, so Mordecai went his way and did according to all that Esther had commanded him. That's fast and pray. Verse 1 of chapter 5, now it came to pass on the third day that Esther put on her royal apparel and stood in the inner court of the king's house over against the king's house. And the king sat upon his royal throne in the royal house over against the gate of the house. And it was so when the king saw Esther the queen standing in the court that she obtained favor in his sight and the king held out to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand. So Esther drew near and touched the top of the scepter. Then said the king unto her, What wilt thou, Queen Esther? And what is thy request? It shall be even given thee to the half of the kingdom. May God be praised. Amen. There was an oppressor. There was a Haman in a high position of authority that hated all of God's people. They prayed for three days and was taken care of. Esther went in before that king. And the king said, I'll give you whatever you want up to half the kingdom. And all she wanted was to have another decree issued, which she got a few days later issued that the Jews could stand up and kill all of their enemies on that same day. And God delivered his people. Did he not? God will raise up deliverance for those who cry unto him, even from a Jim Jones or a Haman. And Haman had far more authority than Jim Jones ever dreamed of. 
I want you to have confidence in God. Look at Psalm 12. Psalm 12. You pray for your pastor. You pray to be delivered from me abusing my office. You pray for you to be delivered from masters abusing you. Children ought to pray for their parents that God will give them wisdom and keep them. Wives ought to pray for their husbands. That's someone in authority. The Bible says pray for all that are in authority. We ought to pray for our national leaders. That we're not led into a war and we lose half of our young men in this congregation someday. We do it by prayer. That's the defense against the Jim Jones. The first, there's more defenses and we'll get to them in time. Psalm 12, 5. Remember we've looked at this before. For the oppression of the poor, for the sighing of the needy. Now will I arise, saith the Lord. I will set him in safety from him that puffeth at him. God sees those that puff at other men and try to take advantage of them and oppress them. And God delivers them. God will set them in safety. He will arise. He sees their oppression. He sees their affliction. And he will arise and deliver them. That is where our protection and defense is. It's not in watering down authority to keep Jim Jones' situation from happening. The first step is confidence in God and begging God for deliverance. He will deliver men from such rulers. Look at Jeremiah 22. Jeremiah 22. We could look at a number of references on this point. Let's look at another one. Jeremiah 22. <coughs> what did Solomon, Solomon the wisest man that ever lived, I mean, did Solomon give his heart to look at the wisdom and the vanity and the oppression of this world? When he gave his heart to look at oppression, he says, what was his concluding statement in Ecclesiastes 5 and 8? When you see oppression in a province, don't worry about it. There's one that's higher than they. That, that is the first step to peace about authority. There's one that's over those that are in authority. They don't get away with more than God allows them to get away with. Right. And listen, you can set up all the safeguards you want. If God wants to judge you anyway, he's going to judge you whether you've eliminated the Jim Joneses or not. First place, we start with trusting God in matters of authority. Look at Jeremiah 22. This is about a king of Israel. Jeremiah 22, verse 13. King of Judah. Woe unto him that buildeth his house by unrighteousness, and his chambers by wrong, that useth his neighbor's service without wages, and giveth him not for his work. Here's a man abusing authority. That saith, I will build me a wide house and large chambers, and cutteth him out windows, and it is sealed with cedar and painted with vermilion. Shalt thou reign, because thou closest thyself in cedar? Did not thy father eat and drink and do judgment and justice, and then it was well with him? He judged the cause of the poor and needy, then it was well with him. Was not this to know me, saith the Lord? But thine eyes. And thine heart are not but for thy covetousness, and for to shed innocent blood, and for oppression, and for violence to do it. Therefore, thus saith the Lord concerning Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, they shall not lament for him, saying, Oh, my brother, or Oh, sister. They shall not lament for him, saying, Oh, Lord, or Oh, his glory. He shall be buried with the burial of an ass drawn and cast forth beyond the gates of Jerusalem. This text is the word of the Lord. 
and it describes a king who took advantage and oppressed people in the name of covetousness and built himself a wide house and made it fancy and plush with the spoils of taking advantage of people. God reminded him of his father, Josiah. You've heard about him recently. God reminded him of Josiah that Josiah obeyed the Lord that was well with him. This man refused to do so, and God said he'd give him the burial of an ass, and there wouldn't be anyone grieving over it. God delivers people from oppressors. And God will deliver those who trust in him from oppressors like a Jim Jones. If the disciples of Jim Jones had been disciples of God, they'd been delivered. Because the disciples of God have rules given to them in Scripture such as, we ought to obey God rather than men. And when requests came out for group suicide, or when the instructions came out for group suicide, or when that was known by those people, they ought to have said we ought to obey God rather than men. Because there comes a point where the line has to be drawn by those that put their trust in God. God's given them his word. And there are obvious lines, and we'll get to them when we look at the checks on authority. But if they'd have known that about God's Word, if they'd been faithful to that, like you will be instructed in the next couple of weeks, they'd have been saved. If the disciples of Jim Jones had searched and obeyed the Scriptures, they would never have died. The Scriptures teach that if you meditate upon their precepts, it'll make you wiser than your teachers. You know, we've always looked at that as some doctrinal debate. It'll make you wiser than your teachers, for those teachers can take advantage of you and take your life, because you're not thinking. The Bible says... The word of God is makes the simple wise. Amen. They continued in their simplicity. They continued in their simplicity. The prudent man looked as well to his going, but the simple pass on their punished. They were simple. And you have been taught to be wise, and you shall be taught to be wise again. They never would have died. Look at 1 Peter 3. 1 Peter chapter 3. But what protection do we have from a Jim Jones? If we believe authority the way you've taught it, the way God has set it forth in His Word, what protects us? First of all, we trust God. Second of all, we know that we ought to obey God rather than men. Then we, we know that Scripture gives us light to save us from rulers who take advantage of us. And then, fourth of all, I'm getting a little ahead of myself. We'll get to it when we look at checks and authority. Is what's given in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 6. Before we read verse 6, remember verses 1 through 5 have set forth the authority of husbands very highly. The women are to be in subjection to them. Verse 2, chaste conversation coupled with fear. Subjection unto their own husbands in verse 5. Even as Sarah, verse 6, obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, whose daughters ye are as long as ye do well. If you're in subjection and you obey your husband and you reverence him, in a way similar to the way Sarah reverenced her husband, you do well. You're like Sarah, a good woman that God recognized. And, and, you're not afraid with any amazement. And, not afraid with any amazement. There's a, now, there's six verses that tell us that women ought to be in fear of their husbands. And fear is a reverential respect for their position in office and submission to them. But there's fear, and then as we get to the very last words the apostle has to say to women, before he takes up husbands in verse 7, he says, just make sure that fear is not in amazement. And many of us have read that verse for so long, we weren't sure exactly what that law clause meant years ago. 
But the word amazement, when used in 1611, describes the state of bewilderment. It describes the state of insensibility, a loss of conscious ability to make decisions. You are, you are so afraid of your husband, or you are so afraid of someone in authority, you are unable to think and reason for yourself to where you blindly obey and are taken advantage of that way and even led into things that God has prohibited. The fear that a woman owes her husband is limited by God right here to be fear without any amazement. They shouldn't be amazed to where they lose their ability to reason. And God has it right there. There is the clause that saves men. No congregation ought to be so afraid of a pastor that they can no longer think for themselves. Read the Bible and be able to read black and white print that says, Thou shalt not kill when the man in the pulpit is saying, We need to kill our children. The world is coming to an end. We don't want anything vicious to happen to them. We don't want them to be taken off and taught the heresy of the rest of the world. So we need to take our children's lives. And the bewildered people in fear of the one that's over them blindly go and do what he says. The Bible says we're to be afraid, but not with any amazement. Listen, there's checks on authority. We'll get to more of those. But right here, when we think about Jim Jones, there's a trust in God to deliver people who pray. There's the knowledge that we ought to obey God rather than men. There's the Holy Scriptures that give us light and protect us from teachers like that. And then there is a warning like this that tell us never to let our fear go so far that we're unable to think for ourselves. Objection number six. I don't like the way you preach because democracy is the greatest form of government the world's ever seen and you keep speaking against it by talking about an autocratic form of government. Which do you love most? Our nation or God's word? Which do you love most? Our history books and books of political science or God's Word? Which do you love most? One man, one vote or God's Word? What do you love the most? Mob rule or God's Word? You've got to make a choice. We have been placed under the government we have by the providence of God. It's God's choice for us to be under a democratic form of government, a representative government if you want to be more precise than a democratic one but one in which we, every man is allowed one vote. No man is put above other men, and together we elect representatives to make decisions for us. But it's one man, one vote. God never enters into the question. God's form of government has always been autocratic. Right. When God created Adam and Eve, he didn't create them partners, he created one over the other. He didn't say one man, one vote, one woman, one vote, so we've got two votes. You'd have a split vote, it'd be a terrible thing, wouldn't it? There's only one person voting in America, and it's the man. He's to rule over the wife, and her desire shall be to her husband. That's the plain statement of Scripture. Then along come children. Listen, if you're to have a quiver full of children, you run your home in a democratic way, you're in trouble, aren't you? I am. I couldn't outvote mine if I used all the fingers on one hand. What would you do if you had a democratic form of government in your home? You know, some of you have seen that movie, Cheap by the Dozen. There's interesting things about it, comical things about it. The one thing I can't stand is the family council. Although I do appreciate the father, usually when he holds the family council and they vote against him, he usually says he has the last vote anyway and votes against and overrides, vetoes their vote. God hasn't set up a democratic form of government. 
In the home, it's fathers ruling over children. And that's the first introduction we have to political science or to the science of authority in our lives with our parents. And we come into this world absolutely helpless. And parents make the decisions for absolutely helpless. I mean, we're strapped in diapers, unable to even control ourselves. And parents have to make all the decisions for us. God has set it up that way. Men come together in business pursuits. God has chosen masters to be over rulers. Nowhere in Scripture are we even given an indication or an implication or an inference that masters ought to sit down and gather all their servants together and say, what do you boys think that we ought to do out here in the field today? God's chosen men to do that for them, for them an autocratic form of government. There to submit. One man makes those decisions for them. We come along further to the church of God, whether it be the Old Testament or the New Testament, and he's set an office to rule over the rest. He has established kings to rule over nations. And whether there, was, there wasn't a king, someone will say, yeah, but what about the book of Judges? A king was a vote against God. Well, I ask you, what form of government did they have before the king? Was it any less autocratic? No, it just wasn't as pagan. They still had judges, and those judges had all the authority of a king. Amen. Those judges still ruled, they were just God's ambassador, and they didn't build gigantic palaces and build standing armies and tax the people to support all those things, like the kings of Israel did, in order to emulate the kings of the nations that were around in the Middle East. That's right. what God didn't want them to do, because they would reject their confidence in God for confidence in standing armies, palaces, and a glorious king before their presence. You read about the judges, they usually stayed right on doing what they were doing. I mean, if if they were called and they were they kept fields, they kept those fields until there was a call for their services. But when the call was for their services, they came forth and they led God's people in an autocratic way. God dealt with the one man, the one man dealt with the nation. And those judges were not chosen by vote. There wasn't one man, one vote. There was one God, one vote. Amen. And God cast the one vote and chose those judges. God raised up men. How many times is it saying, so God raised up, and God raised up, sometimes before they were even born. What about Samson? Before he was even born, God appears to his mother. I'm going to raise up a judge. He's going to be a special man. Here's what you need to do to get ready for that. God raised up an autocratic form of government. I hope you love the word of God more than any written statement about authority that might even be in our own nation. Yeah. Marital partnerships don't work and they're not godly. Group management is not God's way for running a business and it doesn't work. Congregational rule is not what God teaches in scripture. He teaches pastoral rule and so forth. God has ordained authority and he's ordained men for those positions of authority. And we don't try to learn some new system that we think might be an improvement on that because it has not been an improvement on it. <coughs> yes, God's given us great liberties. We have great liberties in our nation not because we have a democratic form of government. We have, a, we have great liberties because we have men that knelt on this soil and trusted God for the future of this nation. That's right. And we had men that allowed the free course of the preaching of the gospel and prohibited Catholicism in the early days of this nation. That's why America's great. Right. That's why America's great. There hadn't been a nation like this since the day of Israel that placed God so preeminently before the people and allowed the free preaching of the gospel. 
The men that came and started this nation came for religious purposes and they trusted God. They may not have believed all the things that we believe, and in fact, they may have persecuted some of us to certain degrees because the Puritans were our persecutors at times because Baptists have always been weird and outcast. But those people trusted in God and they weren't going to submit to the Pope of Rome, nor were they going to let the King of England dictate their religious practices. And God has had mercy on our nation because of that, not because we have some great form of government. God has used that form of government. God has used all sorts of forms of government. God used the kings of Israel to further his own ends. I mean, he built a great temple to himself by way of two kings of Israel, even though they were against his will. Imagine your children practicing democracy in your home. Just think about it. That's the easiest way for most of you to think about authority is to think about how should it be done in the home. Should it be done? Done democratically. Should you sit down and reason with your children? Now I'm not talking about giving your children some input on things that they can that are personal preference. Listen, if I take my children, my boys, to the grocery store and get in that cereal aisle, I may say to them, Do you want no brand sugar glazed oat donuts? Or do you want sugar glazed rice krispies? No brand. And they can make that choice. You know, I will exalt them to a position of authority. They can choose Rice Krispies, the no brand variety, because I'm going to lose my punchline here in a second. But the Rice Krispie variety are the little circles, you know, of oats that are sugar glazed. But guess what I don't allow them to do? To make a choice between no brand and the brand. One choice is above their heads. One choice is mine to make. We're not going to pay twice as much per ounce for getting the same thing just because it has a nice name on it. As an example, I'll give them some decisions to make. I hope they enjoy and they do enjoy it. But they don't get the rest. Listen in questions of morality, questions of principle, how a family's to be governed. A father's got to make those decisions. Right. And he ought to make them. How would your children vote? What's going to happen if I allowed all my children to participate in how our homes run and what we do and what we don't do what we believe and what we don't believe, especially when they're all teenagers? What were you like when you were a teenager? How wise were you? I don't care if you're a teenager at home. A 19-year-old doesn't know squat about running a home. They've never run a home. They've never been in a position of leadership. They have such a limited perspective on life, on authority, on the future. They're very narrow-minded, very simple. And they don't have the responsibility that comes by raising those children. Right. The sheer office creates some responsibility. How would they vote? What if the majority was with the children? What's the effect on the efficiency of the decision when you've got to get everybody's vote? And one last thing. What's the what, two last thing? What's the wisdom of decisions that are made by a democratic process? By definition, you lower them to the common denominator. And the common denominator among human beings is not very high. Right. You lower it to the common denominator. Let us have the numerator that God chose and put in a position of authority over the denominator. The democratic processes do not end up with wise decisions. They end up with average decisions. And the average decision of the human race is stupidity. Right. An average decision of a husband, a wife, and two children is never going to even come close to the decision of a father who properly understands his responsibility and fears God. He will make wise choices. Amen. 
everyone thinks the democratic process leaves happy people because they all get to participate. It leaves unhappy people because you have a divided house. Right. You let your family vote. You let a church vote. You let a nation vote. You let employees vote. And those that lose in the vote are unhappy, disgruntled people because they were given a taste of authority that does not belong to them. If dad from day one, and I thank God the wisdom of what I'm about to say came to me early enough in my life that I could, didn't have to worry about going back on this one. If from day one, your children understand that you have the authority and you make all the decisions, and they've never got the taste of that authority, you will not have the trouble if you play with that and toy with that and let them get a taste for it. You'll fight them the rest of your parental life. It's glor thank God, brethren. I, I thank God we're a young congregation. And some of you that are sitting here that haven't even started yet rejoice in it. You start from day one, they don't even know the difference hardly. It's glorious. Don't let them get the taste. It's hard to take it back. Objection number seven. But shouldn't those in power, shouldn't those in authority at least create some vehicle or some forum where that we can all sit down and discuss what they're going to do? You know, sometimes women get frustrated because their husbands don't include them enough in the decision-making process. Sometimes children think they ought to be consulted by their parents before decisions are made that affect their little lives. Sometimes employees worry, why didn't they sit down and talk about this with us before they went to this new work week by moving up our starting hour from 7.30 to 7. I can't get out of bed that early. And I've been talking to Joe and Susie down the line, and if they'd set us down, we'd have said we'd like 7.30 more. That's our, that's our nation, brethren. That's our nation. That's how our nation thinks. If we're going to have authority like you've preached, at least those in authority ought to give us a chance to participate. Somebody who raised that objection, or if you raised that in your heart, do you really believe that rulers would benefit by such a discussion? Do you really believe that 170 IQ General Schwarzkopf, who has been in the military for 30 years, I believe it's 30 years, would really benefit by sitting down with a, uh, a buck private who's been in there for 18 months and discusses what they ought to do. <laughs> Tell me about it. You know, if General Schwarzkopf wants to send around a little piece of paper with their TV dinners that says, do you like chicken or turkey? That is something they can participate in. But whether they ought to be using M1A Abrams or the M60 tanks, listen, somebody will be making that decision that knows what they're doing. But the objection is raised, shouldn't there be an allowance for discussion at least? That is in the prerogative of the man in authority. It is not in the prerogative of those under authority. Oh, just a second, I hear someone. I hear someone saying, but doesn't the Bible say that there is wisdom in a multitude of counselors? There is wisdom in a multitude of counselors. Yes, the Bible says that. But guess what it really says? There is wisdom in a multitude of counselors. That doesn't say there's wisdom in a multitude of fucking privates. Right. That doesn't say there's wisdom in a multitude of children. 
There's no safety in me asking seven more heads what they think. That there's safety in a multitude of counselors. When you put that verse into practice in your life, and I've really had occasion to think about whether I've taught that verse properly in this church. When you're going to make a big decision for your life, that just doesn't mean you grab three people off the church list and ask them. Because if you do that, you could get Daniel, Philip, and Jonathan. <laughs> you seek out counselors. There is in this congregation men that are known for wisdom. I had a brother call me just a couple days ago and ask me about a business decision. Who we ought to talk to in the congregation. Well, I had three men to give him. And if you ask me the same thing, a little bit different, I might have three different men to give. But there are men with wisdom in this congregation. They're the counselors. You know, don't ask your friends. They don't want to displease you, possibly. There's safety in a multitude, there's safety, not wisdom, safety in a multitude of counselors. I think sometimes we've done our duty by just checking three names off. Well, I've told three different people about what I'm going to do, and they, nobody really said anything, so I'm going to go ahead and do it. Must be okay, must be wise, must be safe, God's going to bless me. You went past three counselors, three critical men in our congregation, three men that aren't afraid to tell you, that's dumb. And you know, if you have a man like that, he's not a counselor. A man that won't say, that stinks, he's not a counselor. Because you know, when you're all bent to do something, when you've got your mind all geared to do something, it takes something that strong and gets you slowed down. Just, I don't know. Have you ever thought about this? Have you thought about, you know, questions like that usually don't cut the mustard. Somebody who's got their mind made up is going to run bullheaded right on to what they're going to do unless somebody goes to the idea. There's safety in a multitude of counselors. It's up to the one in authority to decide how much he allows participation in discussion. Listen, can you imagine what I just suggested about General Schwarzkopf? Can you imagine Alexander the Great sitting down with his 30,000 men and saying, Men, what do you suggest we do against that army there across that river? Here we're beginning our campaign to take over the world that God Almighty has called me to do. And there's 1.1 there's 1.1 million men on the other side of that river led by the Persian king Xerxes. What do you suggest we ought to do? I say we find a time ton and look for an M1A Abrams in the 1980s. Can you imagine that? There was one man with the courage that could take 30,000 men on horseback and by strategy and the sheer force of his personality and most of all, by the omnipotence of a mighty God Amen. to defeat 1.1 million men, the greatest general the world's ever seen. That's right. Can you imagine him sitting down and consulting with some man whose his loins have been loosed when he sees one point? Do you know what it looked like to look at 1.1 million men armed coming at you, and you look around and you can count your own army? Your loins would be loose, but there was one man whose loins were not loose because God Almighty in the book of Daniel said, I've got my hand on that's why he was the greatest that ever was. Amen. The, 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 the exploits of Alexander the Great are recorded in the book of Daniel in brief, and you read them in history and they're glorious. But remember, God was with him. Right. But can you imagine him sitting down asking for advice from his minions? Discussion doesn't necessarily lead to good feelings. You know, you let somebody always participate in discussion with you before you make decisions, and they get a taste for that authority again. The next time you try to make a decision without letting them participate, oh, they're offended now. Because you gave it to them once, now they're offended. 
Now, a man can be wise. Someone in authority can be wise and try it once in a while. But he's got to be careful. Nowhere does the Word of God teach that. It simply tells masters that they owe their responsibility to God. Masters are under authority too, and that's where the protection is. It's not in discussing what they're going to do with those under them. A wise master, a wise husband, wise father, wise pastor is going to consider the desires, the needs of his wife, children, members, and so forth. But it's not a necessity, and there isn't much in the way of safety in it. It's wisdom on his part if he uses it carefully. The last objection I'll raise is but I don't think I'd be happy obeying authority the way you describe it. I think if I tried to submit to someone in authority the way you're talking about, I'd live the most miserable existence possible. I don't think I'd be happy doing it that way. Such an argument to me questions the wisdom and the kindness of the God that created us. Amen. I have this to say, and this is for me. Man cannot make good what God made evil. And man can't make better what God's commended. What God has condemned, you can't make suitable for men. And what God has commended, you can't make better. And if God has ordained authority this way, I believe there's wisdom in it. The greatest happiness of mankind is to practice authority this way. And if you've met someone who's been in authority situation, under authority, in a situation where it hasn't been practiced this way, they are usually miserable. Are the American people a happy working people? Do you know one of the happiest working nations on this earth was Germany during the 1920s and the 1930s? They were under authority, and I'm not exonerating all the things they did. We'll get to that nation sometime in our discussion of what the checks on authority, but they were a happy people because there was lots of authority. People today, where they get to participate, choose jobs, leave jobs, quit jobs, try new jobs, divorce, remarry somebody else for the fourth time, back and forth. You know, no one's under strict authority. Are we a happy nation? Are we a happy nation that loves to serve, loves to obey? We're not a happy nation. Always complaining, always critical, always griping. There isn't happiness there. Peace and contentment is when there is a good leader and people are subjecting themselves to him. You say, well, what if he's not good? If they've been taught properly, they'll know to subject themselves anyway, and they'll still be happy. Because out of conscience toward God, they'll serve with peace of mind. Not always be being offended and complaining because they didn't get enough input into the decision-making. The happiest children are the children under authority. You give me some children that don't know where dad stands, don't know where mom stands, they get to do things their own way, they're spoiled brats and they're not happy. You give me some children where dad makes decisions for them in mercy and pity, shows them <coughs> kindness and tenderness from time to time, I'll show you happy, balanced children. You show me a wife where a husband doesn't take the lead and I'll show you a frustrated woman. I've heard from them before. You show me a woman under a husband who leads her wisely and yet authoritatively, and it'll be a content woman. How many times have you men worked for a master who didn't really practice authority and it left you uneasy, nervous, questioning, insecure, wondering what he wanted you to do? You didn't know what to do to please him. And one that told you what to do, you loved him. And once in a while, when you came back and did a job well, he praised you for it. Why you do anything for a man like that? That's been... <clears throat> 
the testimony of experience, but it's God's word that tells us simply that that's the way it ought to be. I'm just going to introduce one thought. That was the last of the objections I wanted to deal with, just, just a thought, which we'll be taking up in the next two weeks. Some of you have wondered, are we ever going to get to where there's a check on authority? God has some checks and authority. In brief, he's given us his word, he's condemned certain things, and he's required other things. Whenever anyone in the position of authority, whether that be a father, a husband, a pastor, a master, or a president, requires of us something that God has condemned, we disobey. When one of those in authority prohibit something that God has required, we disobey. We only draw that line when we have a very clear scriptural principle at stake. We only draw the line to take matters into our own hands where God has not said something specifically when life is involved. Where life is involved and God may not have dealt with it specifically, we must take it into our own hands to preserve life. And God vindicates that throughout Scripture. In brief, and we'll look at these examples next Sunday, the Lord willing. The apostles said, we ought to obey God rather than men. Why? Because God said, preach. The rulers said, don't preach. A very plain contradiction of what God had told them. So they, they made the decision. We ought to obey God rather than men. We ought. Not we may. Are you, are you all listening to me? Not we may. We ought. To obey God rather than men. Whenever men contradict what God has said, you ought to disobey those men and obey God. Now, when life is in, now that's a plain statement. You've got a statement of scripture that says, preach. And the rulers say, don't preach. And that's easy, isn't it? Now, what if our nation comes down and says, don't ever touch your child? What are you going to do? I'm going to keep right on touching. And I don't mean lovey food. I mean the touching of Proverbs. Right. And if someday that could happen, brethren, someday it could be an offense. Now, it's already on the books of our state, but it's not, it's not enforced strictly yet, but it very well could be in the next ten years. What will you do? We've got scripture telling us to do something. The government's telling us not to do something. We shall do it. What if scripture tells us to abort babies after one child per family? Would that ever happen in this world? Yeah. Pretty close to that over in China, isn't it, Brother Lauren? Required abortions after one child. What if you conceive a second one? In a case like that, does the Bible require us to have a quiver full? This, I'm getting, does the Bible require us to have a quiver full? No. Happiest men had this quiver full. If we had an edict come down one child, only one child allowed per family, does God tell us we have to have more than one? No. So what would we do if we were wise? We'd have one. But what if? 
by some, you know, if you had more, you're just going to get them taken away and given to the state or whatever. If that were the case, you'd want to be very prudent that way. But what if you, your wife conceived and there was a second one on the way and the state required abortion? What, what, where would the limit be of what you would do to disobey that commandment? There is no limit. You would do all in your power to preserve that life. Did you see the distinction of this group? God said thou shalt not kill. God never said thou must have a quiver full. Right. He said happy is the man that has his quiver full. That is the wisdom that we would have to, that's where we would draw the line. Remember the Hebrew midwives over there in Exodus chapter 1? The king said, kill all the boy babies. Did the midwives do it? What was that? That was disobeying the king, wasn't it? When the king called them into his presence and said, why haven't you done it? What they, they lied. Why didn't they say, because we want to protect those Hebrew babies? <coughs> because that's stupid. <laughs> I mean, the Egyptian king would have killed them for that. So what they do? They lied to save their life. Now they disobeyed to save baby lives, and they lied to save their lives. And what did the Bible tell us? The Lord blessed them and built them houses. He wanted you want to learn about safety right now from authority? I have lifted authority as high as I know, and you've heard it for the last seven weeks. You want to hear about safety? I preach on passages like that. You go into other churches, and how often you hear lying talk from the pulpit. And disobeying the king talk from the pulpit. And disobeying parents talk from the pulpit. And disobeying a husband talk from the pulpit. And disobeying pastors from the pulpit. And I shall have Bible examples for every one of them. May the Lord bless us. We are not in danger of a Jim Jones if you will take heed to the teaching. And may God bless us that this teaching is balanced from beginning to end Amen. on authority. We want authority as high as God wants it to be. We want it no higher. Right. We don't want it any lower. But we want to be saved. And you know, there is prudence in Scripture. There is wisdom in Scripture. Amen. And I'm just giving you a little taste. We're going to look at how we would reason through some of those situations that have come up and that may come up in our lives. Brethren, if we live to be 80, 70 years of age, we could very well face some commandments in this nation where we will have to exercise some wisdom based on this book, and we will have to disobey authority. There may be a day, and you may not have to live to 70, when I try to lead you astray. It may happen next week. It may happen next month. You need to be taught when to disobey your pastor and stand up for what God has shown you from Scripture. May the Lord bless us, keep us, and preserve us. It's my prayer. Amen.